0: Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello there. This is Dr. Cindy Banyer, or Dr. Cindy Speaks. I am a congressional candidate here for Florida Congressional District 19 That's Southwest Florida, Boca Grande, all the way to Marco Island, coastal Southwest Florida, including Fort Myers and Naples. I'm a mom, small business owner, and I'm fighting for our water, our health, and our community. And I am here recording this podcast at one sixteen p.m. on Saturday, June 27th, 2020. So this is a very interesting time to be around, as well as an interesting time to be a candidate here in the United States. So today we saw yet another shocking, skyrocketing amount of cases of coronavirus here in Florida. We are edging up close to 10,000 cases yesterday, and that was when there was the previous day almost 9000 cases so weird numbers are just adding and adding and this is something that's of particular concern to somebody like me who is a parent of a vulnerable child as it is probably for many people across Florida and the United States overall, who are vulnerable and have underlying health conditions as well. Uh, These are the people that some think should just be sacrificed for the economy. But I fundamentally don't think that is what we should be doing. I think we should have prioritization around human health and life. And we need to prioritize that and make sure that we are protecting that. And we're in a situation right now where I'm almost at a loss for what we can do because they're, we've gotten so off the rails with the COVID-19 crisis. And it's sad. You know, we knew what to do. The public health experts and the epidemiologists told us what needed to be done. They warned the National Administration in the United States months in advance of the, you know, the upcoming pandemic. And it was ignored and dismissed. And it was... Leading us to where we are today and so we had a lot of time ahead of time to figure out we used to have a pandemic response team that was disbanded by Trump in 2018 and that's a big problem as well and I am somebody who thinks that we need to have a government that's a well-oiled machine functioning behind us, like an operating system almost on our computers, where it just runs. It just runs, it does what we want. And sometimes we get mad, right? I think anybody who's, you know, been around through the several genesis of the Windows system, we get mad at our operating systems and it doesn't always work the way that we want. And there's always room for improvement. But who wants to go back to DOS? Right? Nobody's screaming to go back to DOS, just like we shouldn't be screaming to dismantle our government, which is exactly what's happened under the guise of fiscal conservatism and under the guise of, um, you know, the Republican Party saying that we need to just not put people in place and we're going to put cronies into positions in our government and we're just going to continue to underfund, underfund, underfund. The thing is, is that what we see in this pandemic is that we actually really need our our government to work. We need to have it functioning because the times that we want the government to function is when it's an emergency and you need to spin up things very quickly. And I just, um, wish that we had had that, you know, engagement and had that, um, emphasis beforehand. And, uh, we don't, and it's, it's, it's a shame. And so I don't really know what to do anymore because we had a playbook. We had a, you know, a pandemic playbook uh, for the U S government and, you know, for the global community. And it kind of told us what we needed to do and uh, we didn't do it or we didn't do it. Well, let's say we kinda, we, we really have to it. Let's put it that way. We really have to it. And here we are. And so I don't really know what to tell anybody anymore, what to do. You know, it's just this situation where we are seeing spikes, And we're seeing people who are reluctant to even believe the situation that we have a pandemic and that, that strictly goes back to leadership for me, because if we had told everybody it was real, instead of, you know, trying to get people to be convinced that it was a hoax for months on end, that we would not be in the situation we are right now. And between that and the actual coordination, between the the federal and the state and the local level, rather than the competition between them to devise policy, um, has left us completely, um, you know, completely lost. We're lost. And all we can really do now um, is just ride the wave, ride the wave from here until until the end, until there's a vaccine, until there's, you know, built up immunity around it, I, I don't know. But we're we're in pretty uncharted territory right now because uh, we were supposed to follow the book and the book got thrown out the window. But anyway, so that's kind of what's going on here in this day and time and um, i am staying home as i have been since the beginning of march i am uh, self-isolating as much as possible to help keep my young and vulnerable daughter safe as well as my other children and myself you know it's that serious and Uh, But that means I'm running a 100% virtual campaign, which is why I started this broadcast. So I had the ability to connect with people and learn a lot. And that's exactly what we have going on here today. So I have a fantastic guest and we're going to talk about some new ways of thinking around the economy. And this is going to be a very fascinating discussion. And uh, he is calling in right now. So let's go ahead and get this started. I have Scott Ferguson calling in here. Hello, Scott. You hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can hear you. Okay, good. That's fantastic. Because yesterday I my mic wasn't working and I talked to myself for about 15 minutes before I realized that my mic wasn't working. Oh that's
1: the worst.
0: that it's working here today. So I think that we, um, and thank you so much for being here. This is going to be a very exciting conversation. Um, and it, it's it's kind of, um, I learned about, uh, the, the modern monetary theory in a kind of roundabout way. It was very interesting. Um, I actually was calling folks and I was introduced uh, to the concept by somebody that I had just happened to have called to introduce to my campaign. And then I was connected with uh, Scott, who told me a little bit more about it. And and just before we launch into it, I want to say that the reason I think this is so fascinating is because it really kind of puts together some of the fundamental understandings about our economy that I held before I was able to put words around it. So, um, and I hope that we'll learn a lot more about it, but Scott, can you go ahead and just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, you know, what is it that that you do? Yeah. Well, thanks so much
1: for having me. Um, I, I think the fact that you found me in a, in a very grassroots way speaks to, The um, just the incredible enthusiasm there is with just everyday people about modern monetary theory. I myself am a professor, I'm an associate professor of humanities and cultural studies at the University of South Florida at the Tampa campus. Uh, I specialize in um, media culture, moving image culture, you know, I teach movies, I teach, you know, pop Hollywood stuff all the way to obscure old avant-garde stuff. Uh, I'm also um, very interested in uh, political economy or economics, but I approach political economy from a, what's known as a heterodox perspective. So there, there's a orthodox perspective that is taught in the mainstream economics programs in this country (laughs) and in the UK and around the world. And that's known as neoclassical economics. It goes back uh, to Older 19th century ideas and has been developed over time. I uh, am, by contrast, interested in you know more more critical ideas that don't take the neoclassical orthodox story for the way that economics works for granted. And then in my own work at uh, the university and in my own publishing, I bring this heterodox modern monetary theory economics into dialogue and conversation with my work on media culture, moving images. And it, this could be anything from uh, just studying the way representations of money uh, work and what they look like and sound like in movies, um, all the way to you know how media is, is financed and what kinds of media is financed over others. Uh, and then the you know the question spiraled out of there. So I I teach this at USF, and I uh, also am a member of the Modern Money Network, and that is a five hundred one c C3- three. Nonprofit organization uh, that started uh, at Columbia Law School and now has branches at many campuses uh, across the nation. And our purpose is to raise awareness about um, the way that our monetary and financial system is actually structured as opposed to the ways that we're told it's structured. And along with that, um, Comes, you know, uh, offering you know ideas for different ways that we might structure the economy uh, that's more just and more environmentally friendly uh, and things like that. So this is this is the background, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about what some of the basic ideas of modern monetary theory are. Um, yeah, is that cool? yeah,
0: absolutely yeah and and then it's you know I also want to kind of wrap into this conversation um, who else is applying this as well so I, I really um, I, I love your description of it and I'm so happy that we were connected that you're so passionate about this because I really do think it's important that um, if we're really looking at systems to think about how we can break those paradigms about what we think we know or what we think, is going to happen, um, and that's exactly what we got here. So yeah, go ahead, let, Scott, launch us into what are some of the, the basics of modern monetary theory?
1: Yeah, I, we can go to the basics or I can answer your question about who's who's <laughs> who's working with this, right? So the, that, the answer is a lot of people and in a variety of ways. Um, you know, the most high profile uh, example is Stephanie Kelton, who is an economist at, uh, SUNY Stony Brook. And she um, just came out with a a New York Times bestseller book in the last few weeks called The Deficit Myth. She herself was the um, lead economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, first on the uh, Senate Budget uh, Committee. Uh, Sanders was uh, in the minority uh, leadership role there. And then she went on to advise him on his 2016 campaign and has been uh, working with him ever since, uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, b- bless his heart, uh, learned a lot from MMT. He learned a lot from Stephanie, and 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 actually, you know, inc- has included Stephanie in you know many of the big conversations around his campaign and his uh, the establishment of his Sanders Institute. Um, but he ha- he hasn't gone the full distance. Uh, so that's just, that's one example. Um, uh, you know, to be honest, you know, Stephanie has worked on the Hill for a while now. And so lots of, lots of people know about it. The question is who's willing to talk about it. One, (laughs) one person that that has put their money where their mouth is, so to speak on MMT and given us a kind of a big boost is, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, Um, A little less well-known is some more recent work. Um, uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, has uh, offered up some legislation to address the economic fallout from the pandemic and Mm -hmm. specifically about uh, getting cash into everyone's hands immediately uh, and more so than the, um, uh, you know, the like the unemployment benefits are giving people, and you know mm-hmm. what the, what the CARES Act has done. And she's working with one of my colleagues uh, at the Modern Money Network, Rowan Gray, uh, to work on some of those ideas. I can come back <laughs> to what that yeah. idea actually is. So now let's just okay. talk about what MMT is. Right? We'll, yes.
0: We'll let's do that.
1: Beating around the bush. Uh, <laughs> so. The basic idea of MMT is that it is a more accurate description of the way that our economic system and monetary system actually works, as opposed to the way in which uh, the mainstream discusses it and uh, imagined it works. We begin by understanding money as a public monopoly that is Founded by the government of the United States, if you take out a dollar bill right now, you're going to see all kinds of evidence of where money comes from. Money comes from the government. Because money comes from the government, it must always be spent before it is taxed back. No one in the world can have access to a U.S. dollar, whether they earn it, you know, working at Chili's, or they make it by scoring big on the stock market. Nobody has a dollar unless the U.S. government has issued it in one way or another. (laughs) One way that that money gets out there circulating is through congressional appropriation. Another way that that money gets out there is through state licensed banks. And what that means is, I mean, federally state licensed banks, there's state you know, individual state licensed banks as well, but that's all predicated on federal authority anyway. Mm-hmm. So what banks do is they issue credit, which we argue is money. They mm-hmm. issue credit on behalf of the U.S. government. The The upshot of all this is because the United States government is the source of the currency, and it it um, makes the currency, it can't actually ever run out of the currency. And what this means then is that the federal government has a lot more fiscal policy space than orthodox economics and orthodox political rhetoric allows for. Mm -hmm. Our argument is a government that issues its own currency like the United States can always afford what is available to be purchased or can be mobilized in terms of material resources, labor and know-how, right? So long as that stuff is out there to be bought or do, to be put into action. When there are not resources or not, uh, when there's not enough labor, then there are limits to uh, spending and they are real material limits. And that's why, from an MMT point of view, we say the limits to spending are real resources and labor. They're not so-called affordability. So mm-hmm. one analogy we like to point to, there's actually a few, but one we like to point to is you know when we go to a, a Tampa Bay Lightning game, right? We don't sit there worrying you know, on driving, driving down. Uh, to the game if the referees are going to have enough points to award when the goals are scored. And, oh, my gosh, what if they, what if they score, like, 30 goals tonight? It, it's, like, unprecedented. We don't then ask, you know, are the referees going to borrow points from other top, you know, top teams in the league who, who have earned a lot of points? This is ridiculous. So mm-hmm. the federal government is like that. It's kind of like a, mm-hmm. a scorekeeper or, or a point awarder. Another analogy is like a, a parent's chore chart. You know, we both have kids and we probably mm-hmm. have versions of this. You know, we're always adjusting ours to, you know, <laughs> deal with whatever b- behavioral issue is happening in our house. And, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, you could buy stickers in the store or you could just like, you know, draw stars on the chore chart, right? Mm-hmm. And at no point do you run out of those stars, right? That's mm-hmm. just ridiculous. The, the The real limit is, well, <laughs> what kind of behavior, you know, what kinds of chores, what kinds of, you know, being polite, uh, setting the table, you know, what kinds of things can you get <laughs> your kids to do through this counting system essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the that's like NMT 101. Maybe we'll pause mm-hmm. there and you can ask me yeah. questions.
0: Yeah, I'm just reflecting back on that. And you and I have had this uh, conversation. You know, we've been talking about this for a little bit. And, you know, as I started out with, I, I really gravitated toward this once you were explaining it, because this is kind of how I explain it to my students at Florida Gulf Coast University when we do talk about the economy as well and how much of it is related to um, perception, and that actually we, you know, that numbers, th- these large numbers, trillions, billions, we don't really have a good grasp of, frankly, as no. humans. <laughs> and we can count. Uh, we get ten. Like this is what I tell my students. I'm like, uh-huh. y- you see those two hands in front of you. That's about the limits of your conceptual understanding of of numbers. And. <sighs> Because everything beyond 10, it's just, it it just, it's on paper. You know what I mean? Or it's just, it's just a market. so
1: big. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have
0: no idea. And so like, I I know I have a section where we talk about uh, like cocaine trafficking and it's like 340 tons a year of cocaine is trafficked. I'm like, okay, so how much is that? Like how big is that? Is that we right. like, stacked it up in like containers? Is this like as big as this building? Like, I have no idea, you know. Um, and neither do you, and neither does anybody else, unless somebody's like, you know, calculating it out themselves, but even in their own mind and their own understanding, their innate understanding of the world, they don't know it. And mm-hmm. so I kind of based that, that kind of understanding of how humans interact with numbers into the economy too right so we're talking was the cares act was like 4.5 trillion dollars or something but it depends how you
1: count that yeah yeah
0: yeah well sure and exactly and it's but at some point it just becomes so kind of abstract and detached that we we no longer have an understanding of it in like a tangible sense and yeah there's a
1: great snl sketch actually from this last year yeah that i'll send you it's really funny it's uh It's about uh, Elizabeth Warren and and her trying to explain how she's going to pay for her healthcare plan and eventually uh, just trails off into like, you know, six trillion, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, this just numbers. It's it's pretty funny.
0: Yeah. But it's I mean, it's true to a certain extent, too. It's like, here we are, we can get to 10. We know that because that's how many fingers we have. And it's this like very psychological for us. Um, But that's why, you know, when we talk about so much of the global economic system is based on relations and perspectives and, um, perception. And that's, um, that's kind of what we talk about in my class when I teach global studies. And I love that this has got a little bit more in depth on it that I can really grasp on. But, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about what this means in terms of, of, of our policies, like how, yeah. how can this affect our policies or how should we reinterpret our policy development because of this? Yeah,
1: that's great. Let me just quickly follow up, kind of piggybacking on what you're saying about our perception and, and, you know, sort of not really having an intuitive grasp of things that are you know, literally beyond our fingers, right? Counting beyond our fingers. right? Um, ana- and then another analogy that we use, but, but critique in the MMT uh, literature and community is the analogy between the, the, the federal budget and the household budget or the firm budget. And, you know, you hear this in political rhetoric all the time. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I don't the, a politician gets on TV in a debate or on a commercial and says something like, you know, is complaining about the national debt or deficits and is saying, you know, I don't run my household budget in this way. I balance my budget. I'm responsible in my house or in my company. So, mm-hmm. you know, how dare the current administration and the current Congress be so reckless and, and not balancing the, the federal budget? You know, it's terrible. And our argument is that this is just a false equ- uh, equivalence. Th- these are not related at all. And in fact, if... If the federal government isn't running some kind of deficit, then there is not going to be enough money in the economy for you, for you and your household. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a totally asymmetrical relationship that, mm-hmm. that are, just have nothing to do with one another in terms of um, the, the principles or the ethics that they're supposed to be following. Um,
0: hey, can I just but, add on to that, too, that that's actually it's all just a that's a bullshit thing that people say anyway, because the vast majority of people, um, you know, it, it may be actually a, a more of a reality for people who are lower income and living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, because you have to budget when you live like that, or you don't right. have the ability to have access to capital. But no yeah, most you're people punished,
1: who- right? You're disciplined <laughs> into it, right? But yeah, I agree with you. Most rich people and, and corporations, like, They're always over leveraged. That's how you
0: succeed. Well, and everybody, (laughs) if if you're a quote homeowner, unless you pay cash for that outright, yeah, you're in debt, right? Exactly. You got a mortgage. So yeah, no, you're not like quote living within your means or within your budget because you have have debt. We have credit card debt. We have student loan debt. We could talk about that, but we have, you know, all this other debt that we've leveraged to be where we are, um, especially people on the, you know, the higher, um, you know, income brackets in the society. And so I, that has always like rang false to me when people totally. say that, because I know that they're there. It's not even true in their own household or yeah. business.
1: Absolutely. For sure. Um, so p- policy wise, I mean, yeah, we could talk about a lot of things. We could talk about, uh, you know, student debt cancellation. We can talk about reducing Uh, the fees for universities, public universities. um, uh, You know, the the question becomes, what do you want to do as a society, not what can you afford to do? Or if you're going to ask the affordability question, you got to say, well, do we we have enough, you know, PhDs who can be professors at, you know, our expanding universities that we want to have? Well, the answer to that question is, Yes, we do, and most of them are adjuncts, and we can yeah, pay yep, them a lot me. better, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So you know, these are these are political questions, material questions, and questions of inflation, but they are mm-hmm. not questions at all of affordability. Um, I, I will say that uh, one of the one of the ways that people write off MMT is they do this slippery slope argument, right, and they mm-hmm. they accuse us of being just irrational so what they say is you know oh well once you open you know open that possibility uh of of federal spending without limit then that means you you really are going to literally spend like nonstop, and you'll never 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 cease and it'll cause hyperinflation and, you know we're not we're not advocating for irrationality you don't throw everything mm-hmm. else out the door you just shift the conversation
0: mm-hmm. one
1: major policy so Mostly, MMT is descriptive and says, look, the policy, the, the, sorry, the fiscal space or the fiscal policy space is, is much larger than you think it is. Mm-hmm. Certainly in a recession or depression like we're in right now, it's mm-hmm. wide open because millions of people are unemployed. So you've got all kinds of possibilities, right, if you mm-hmm. want to use the, the public purse. Um, but so, so it's about shifting the, shifting the frame shifting the conversation, and then the the primary policy that we advocate for, although we do advocate for others, the primary one is a public option for work. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has different names. Uh, One of them is the job guarantee or the jobs guarantee. And essentially what this does is it um, goes back to uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, second uh, Bill of Rights and the the demands of uh, the civil rights movement and the march on Washington and beyond and uh, takes up the idea that everyone has a right to decent, well paid work, a mm-hmm. job in our society, and that the the private sector cannot ensure that for everyone because it op- operates according to the profit motive and it's got to mm-hmm. be you know, lean in places. And the private sector's job is not to make sure everyone is included, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the public sector's job. And uh, our argument is that, oh, my goodness, there's always more more to be done. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, uh, uh, you know, uh, obsessed with the Protestant work ethic. You know, we're not like work, work taskmasters. You know, we, we actually think you can Uh, lessen the overall uh, average workday through a job guarantee. So, you know, we're not totally obsessed with work, but we we think that everyone should have a right to a public job, doing something in and for their community. Uh, It would be federally funded, but it would be administered across sectors and across levels of governance. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we could have like old school, new deal federal works projects, nothing wrong with that. You can Mm -hmm. also have state level projects. You can have county and city level projects. You could even get, you know, even more uh, kind of innovative and do like municipal councils or neighborhood projects that could have access to these federal grants if they, you know, complied Mm -hmm. by certain standards. Also, uh, as um, one of the the great modern monetary theorists who writes a lot about the job guarantee, Pavlina Cherneva will often say, you can can, um, fund the nonprofit sector Mm -hmm. uh, to hire people. Of course, they're always looking for people, and especially in a recession, they're the ones who have to, you know, cut first. So imagine, you know... (sighs) Imagine giving Habitat for Humanity a bunch of grants to hire people to help them. Imagine mm-hmm. Meals on Wheels getting those grants, right? Um, and, and so that way we're having work, community work done by people who are already doing it and they can just expand their enterprise rather than having to like invent things from scratch. And what the job guarantee does is it not only gives everybody who is willing and able um, training and, and a job, but it also sets what we call a wage and benefits floor for the entire economy. Mm-hmm. And that says that, you know, I mean, you, it's politics, you have to decide what it's going to be. Like, you know, let's say, let's say we want a really, you know, really robust wage floor. And let's, so let's say we make it $22 an hour, right? Mm-hmm. What, whatever. Um, And then you bake in certain um, benefits like paid vacation and paid sick time and, um, you know, all all the delicious goodies that we want to make a good society. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that does is it sets the standard for the entire economy. And it doesn't just do so by the letter. Right. It's not even just a law that says, well, everybody must comply. It actually embodies it. Because it just starts paying twenty-two dollars an hour to a whole host of people with all of these privileges, and then what does that do to the low, low-paid, you know, precarious service sector that mm-hmm. that our society mostly runs on? It says to that sector, "You are going to lose employees left and right going to mm-hmm. work in community gardens or pushing in to teach art in schools or." Clean, cleaning up our cities and straightening sidewalks and mm-hmm. retrofitting buildings for ecological uh, improvement. You're going to lose these workers unless you pay them a little bit more than $22 an hour and you give them decent benefits.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: basically, if you, don't, if you don't pay up, then you're out essentially.
0: Yeah. And I love that. I love that because that actually, that's, that's part of the market, right? Um, that forcing yes. that, you know, you have to compete. So, and, and it allows for that free market thinking and the private sector can be the private sector and do their thing. But ultimately they, they there's going to be competition in that uh, workforce pool. Um, so exactly. I, I, I am, I, I love that aspect of it because it kind of sidesteps the whole, Um, regulation component that a lot of the conservatives want to rail against Um, saying, Oh, the government's over-regulating and they do this. Well, we don't have to regulate. So if there is this universal job guarantee and you, like you said, there is a floor for wages and benefits then they inherently have to compete. Exactly.
1: And And what, what this, what this requires then is for us uh, progressives or, you know, however you want to describe yourself to, to take back take back the discourse of dynamism and innovation back into the public sector. You know, since the, the Reagan Revolution, we, we've been all taught and brainwashed from a very early age to think of government you know, as the worst thing, the sluggish thing, the you know, mm-hmm. all the red tape and all the approval you know, approval, and you know, you can't you can't do anything dynamic and interesting there. Um, not only is that wrong. Um, but it also becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where, mm-hmm. where people who are big thinkers and dynamic and want to shake stuff up and, um, try new things don't go into <laughs> public service. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that's changing a little bit, especially with candidates like yourself who are getting fired up and want to really see this world headed in another direction. But yeah. I think we have a long way to go to, to reclaim the public. Yeah. As um, as the cool place to be, right? As where yeah. where we get things done in a in a innovative way.
0: And what what the the Reaganites forget to mention is that the reason that the government is so bureaucratic is because of all the means testing that they put yeah, in. Of
1: course, no, of course it is. Yeah, and then <laughs> you know, uh, right? Then the other side of that too. I mean, it's all hypocritical and contradictory. The other mm-hmm. side of that is that. You know, it, we, if we think of Silicon Valley as the, the, the great beacon of private innovation, you know, most of the technologies and tools that we now, you know, enjoy coming out of Silicon Valley were all the result of years and government years grant. of oh, sh- R&D, government grants, mm-hmm. government institutions. Absolutely. I mean, Silicon Valley was made by the, the, the robust mid-century military industrial complex all funded by a Mm -hmm. a government that compared to ours was not so deficit averse and wasn't afraid to spend on really big things like going to Mm -hmm. the moon right Mm -hmm. and that's why we have siri that's why we have touchscreen technology um that stuff didn't come from you know like precarious little startups in
0: in garages in silicon valley right right? (laughs) right this is how elon musk uh Built his empire too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to just roll back to something because my brain started firing when you're talking about the nonprofit sector. Because, of course, I have spent my career outside of uh, part time academia in the nonprofit sector. And something that has always, I, I love my nonprofit partners. I really do. There's so many people uh, working passionately to help our community become a better place. And the people who are doing the work, it, it is, it's shoestring budget, right? It's, yep. you know, just trying to do it because they're so passionate about this, this change that they want to make. And, um, but there's another side of it and particularly in the philanthropy component Mm -hmm. of nonprofits. Right. And it's something that over the 10 years that I was in that sector, very heavily in this region that I really started to feel uncomfortable with because this you know, I I love when people want to donate to organizations, and they want to donate to organizations that um, help our community. I think that's absolutely fantastic, admirable, and needed. What I got a little bit uh, turned off by is how there's significantly large amounts of money that are dumped into organizations, into foundations, in the name of philanthropy that do two things one they are skirting these individuals uh supposed contribution to our you know taxes yeah i I appreciate the word supposed yeah right um uh but this supposed to be their contribution and they're skirting that around um so that's one thing that makes me upset because i think everybody should be paying into the public good. Mm
1: -hmm. The
0: second component of it that really started to make me feel uneasy is the control factor Mm -hmm. is that it's, it's not only just, you know, averting taxes and paying in, but it's also averting or, or allowing them to exert control and do what they want. So they can put it into a religious charity or they can put it into something that, um, the ones that I really hate, but the ones that, that uh, help young women uh, avoid abortion and all that kind of stuff. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and they're, you know, pilfering <laughs> these, these young women off the streets and kind of, you know, it, yeah. but, and that's a very kind of, I don't know. There's, there's a whole lot to that for me, but, um, but yeah, so they put it into their own little niche area that, and then they continue to control it. And then the way that those documents are written in terms of those donor agreements, uh, especially with the states they live forever. So there are people, there are funds that are going out in this community from people who died in the seventies
1: the eighties,
0: and they're still doing what that person wanted in the seventies and eighties. Wow. And there's no legal way around it because it's all about donor intent. You have to continuously honor that. Um, That's
1: incredible. And so it's like,
0: yeah, it's in perpetuity. Yeah. They're, that rich person's perspective has an outsized effect on whom succeeds and whom fails in our community. Yeah, um, And it's, so that's, so this is why I was going on, you know, like I said, I was firing on all cylinders as you're talking about this, because I think there's a real opportunity with something like that, that full uh, employment opportunity to put people into the nonprofits and maybe you know, derail some of the, that control of philanthropy in our community. Because here's the other thing that happens on that is that it, it builds the power structure, the local power elite, because none of the nonprofits are allowed to say anything against their benefactors. So this is one reason why I'm coming into politics. And a lot of people hadn't heard of me because I was very much behind the scenes doing work is because we were literally barred from saying anything in public, saying anything on Facebook, saying anything to the media about how we politically or partisanly felt. And it was all because of the control of the donors on the industry. So it's really like disruptive to the system and the power structure that holds kind of towns and localities like this hostage.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And that goes all the way up, right? And we're thinking about Mm -hmm. Tallahassee, and and state-level austerity um, across the board in our school system, and our university system, uh, right, it goes all the way up. And in fact, this this is a nice segue to talking about the way that uh, we MMT folk uh, understand and try to describe the actual nature and function of taxation uh, rather than uh, the way we're all brought up to imagine it working. So, we what we imagine, and this is already implied in what I've said, but it needs to be spelled out because it's so it's been so naturalized, frankly. Mm-hmm. So we we grow up and we think that you know the government you know it's running out of money, and that in order to get money, it's got to tax it's got to tax money from the private sector because that's where money grows, like you know like you know weeds in a field. And it has to gather those weeds back in so that it can afford a few things. So our our argument is that because the federal government creates the money, it doesn't it can't actually it doesn't need the money. It can, it can, it can always make more money. Um, uh, so taxes don't don't <laughs> become fiscal spending. Taxes don't pay for congressional appropriation. When taxes are collected, essentially what is happening is that, you know, their numbers on a computer and they're being deleted. Mm -hmm. Because again, you know, when when my kid comes with all the stars that I've given him over the last week for all the good things that he did, and he's like, can I have my toy or my screen time now? Right, I don't need those stars, right? I don't (laughs) use those stars for anything, right? I, I just needed him to do some good things. Uh, Mm -hmm. the same thing is here too so Mm. what are taxes for so when people hear that they're like oh then you know why bother paying taxes at all this is ridiculous this is just a big hoax and we say no that actually you need a federal tax system in order to what we say anchor and drive the currency that a currency is actually a tax credit at Mm. at, at the bottom of things it's basically you owe the government a series of things and this you know Simplistically, it's the federal government, but in fact, it's all levels, including like court fees and fines and, you know, I mean, really what, what the U.S. dollar is, is a unit of obligation and settlement. And, and, and so you need to be obliged to pay various kinds of taxes in order to be looped into the system and for the system to work and to, to basically help, you know, ideally, to make us collectively work together to, to make a decent place to live. Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. always work out that way. But that's the function of taxation, we say, not to pay for programs. Now, what this means then is when we are fighting our political fights and making our cases for why we should have a job guarantee or cancel student debt, or a Green New Deal, or whatever it is that we're interested in, we need to separate the politics of taxation from the politics of a particular fiscal project. So, if, you know, if you're a progressive using MMT, you would say, yes, please tax the rich. That's a great idea, because we have such a, such wealth inequality Um, And and it's such a polarized society that, Mm -hmm. as you were saying at the local level, creates gigantic uh, disparities in in political power Mm -hmm. such that somebody Mm -hmm. like Michael Bloomberg can just, like, buy his way into an election that many other people with lots of better ideas would have liked to have gotten into. um, Mm -hmm. But but they didn't have the money to just barge in, right? Right. And that's just one extreme example. Um, So – our argument would be: you tax the rich in order to have a better democracy, to have more equal distribution of power, right? Mm-hmm. Not to so-called recycle their money, mm. and then have the have the battle about about what you want—a job guarantee or whatever. Have that be its own separate thing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and this way you prevent the the pundits and the 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 you know the, the conversation from sliding into these these um, uh, scare tactics about, well, raising taxes on the middle class, right? Well, if we mm-hmm. want, you know, universal health care, you know, well, you seemingly comfortable white middle-class person, sorry, you're going to have to pay more in taxes. And even even if Bernie does the math for you and says that you'll be saving in the long run, you just don't like the idea of your taxes going up. And our mm-hmm. argument would be your taxes don't need to go up. Mm-hmm. That's that's absurd. Um, so, so separating those fights is so important. Yeah. Um, and I think another reason you want to separate those fights is you don't want to give the rich, like your your discussion of local rich, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to give the rich that kind of power. You don't want to. Mm-hmm. You don't want to rhetorically say, "Can we have this if you give us some money?" Right. Instead, we should just take claim over the public purse and say it belongs to all of us, and we should be spending toward you know, public purposes and you know whether you want to pay in or not, it doesn't matter, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe maybe we're not gonna win the, the tax fight for a while. In the meantime we can have a job guarantee and we can, mm-hmm. you know, put people to work and build solidarity and then maybe a little bit down the road we start winning some tax fights, right? So they're just they're 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 two different Dimensions that the mainstream discourse has fused together in ways that basically always make Democrats lose, right? Because nobody wants the taxes <laughs> to go up, right?
0: Right, because right. Yeah. that comes out of your pocket. Yeah. So great, Noah. Thanks. That was a very enlightening discussion. There's, there's like two other questions that I have. Um, I know that we're 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 going long, but there's a couple things because that came up that I wanted your insight on. Um, the one of them was that. Uh, that came up in the debate that we had this week. So there's uh, been a series of bipartisan debates and is hosted by this uh, it's supposed to be non-political, non-partisan think tank, which is why they invite the Democrats, but they're very conservative <laughs> in their philosophy. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I appreciate and honor them in the process. So I participated in their three candidate forums, as well as their sit down interview for endorsement, which I am, hundred percent sure that i did not get their endorsement but i'm hoping (laughs) that they gave me like a check plus for trying and being Uh, honest in my and authentic in my positions which is uh, what i was hoping for but um but anyway so one thing that came up uh in that was and by the way just before i go into this whole thing about china but that's their interview was actually where i jumped headlong into modern monetary theory because it wasn't recorded it wasn't. It, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it. Oh, which is probably uh, for the best because I'm uh, quite, um, I'm quite new at this right, uh, in right. terms of explaining it on my policy platform. But sure. a lot of their, 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 their questions and in their interview were on abortion and debt. And that was it. And the abortion one. Nailed it. Got it. I'm pro-choice. I'm authentic in that. No big deal. Yeah. The debt one though was a little bit, and they had never heard the things that I was saying. You oh, know, they're like, not. Are you sure that we just, you know, this deficit isn't a problem? Like, it's not a problem." Yeah. <laughs> um. So anyway, it was um, it was really a fascinating conversation. Uh, but that's why I said I'm going to have to give my friends over there a call again so we can get skilled up and start talking about this in a real way yeah. a better way. So the other the other thing that came up in this debate was uh, about China. And this like for me was just I like I, I don't even know where to start because it's just so implausible. But this is a real thing that real candidates in my district, Florida Congressional District 19, that the Republican candidates are saying. They are saying that we need to hold China accountable to our debts, that we need that they just are basically need to, you know, full amnesty, and that we are going to essentially charge them for the 4.5 trillion or whatever that the CARES Act costs because the coronavirus <laughs> was their fault. And <laughs> I, yes, I know it's. I mean, it I'm,
1: I'm I'm laughing instead of screaming, right? Because it's it's so horribly racist.
0: Oh, uh, I know. And, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, and that's where I was saying, like, watching this debate, I'm like, it, it, none of that makes sense. I mean, let's let's say, okay, like, even if you just play the game of like, let's say that everything that just came out of your mouth is true, there yeah. is no mechanism for that. Like, there's no there's no international no. body that you no, can no. It's to called and be war. Like, yeah like what are you you know what are you talking about it's the same thing with like holding you know making mexico pay for the border wall like yeah, that's not how it works like these are just words that you're saying because it revs up your base and it's it's all this racist they're not even dog whistles it's just like overt racism right right. uh, uh, you know and scapegoating for things that you don't like because it sounds big and bad and scary to people um but anyway i just wanted to kind of um get your thoughts on on that and like what would be a really great kind of response to something like that, according to the, the MMT framework?
1: Yeah. So one maybe preliminary remark that I wanted to make sure to uh, get into this particular conversation was what MMT allows us to do and what allows um, people like you to do who are running for office and trying to, to shape the debate is to get away from zero sum politics, where we imagine that one needs to rob Peter to pay Paul, which usually Mm -hmm. means taking money from uh, white middle-class people uh, and giving it to brown people that scare them. And and this kind of rhetoric, this kind of zero-sum rhetoric fuels resentment, it Mm -hmm. fuels hatred, and it makes things even worse than they already are. And every time we get that kind of, that kind of zero-sum political speech, um, it, just, it, 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 it just drives me mad because it's not actually what, how things work. Um, when it comes to China and the debt, okay, so let's talk about why, why China owns a bunch of treasury securities. This is because we buy a lot of things from China, right? As -hmm. consumers, but also, you know, our our industry, you know, pays people Mm -hmm. in China, other industries in China. So, and they pay in U.S. dollars, right? They don't pay pay in yuan. So, so China has a lot of dollars because we, we want the stuff that they make for us, Mm -hmm. right? So then they need to figure out a, a place to park that, right? And that, that's a lot of money, right? And the, the government of China actually, right, you know, has, has a lot of those U.S. dollars. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are caps on U.S. bank accounts. You can't just park billions of dollars in, <laughs> right, like mm-hmm. over at Bank of America, right? <laughs> um, and, and, I mean, and this is the case for all rich people and all corporations in the world. They, right, they do other things. They make investments and the the safest investment in the United States and probably the world is the U.S. Treasury bond. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So so they buy these Treasury bonds, and essentially what they do when they buy the Treasury bonds is they've got liquid cash, which is essentially like having a bank account at the Federal Reserve, and then when they purchase the Treasury bonds, it's kind of like... Uh, it when you change, when you push money from your checking account that doesn't earn interest into a savings account that's less liquid and earns interest. So mm-hmm. that's sort of what happens, except it goes from the Fed to the Treasury. And so now they, they can't spend it whenever they want. They have to wait for it to mature. And they're earning interest in a way that they weren't before. Mm-hmm. That's like technically why China has all this all of this holds all of all of this debt of the United States. Mm-hmm. Now we have to come back to what we were saying about the federal government and where money comes from. We we told the the, the MMT uh, version of what are taxes for. Now we have to we have to talk about what treasury bonds are for. Mm-hmm. So we say that well when we when we can't find the taxes, the federal government can't find. The taxes, they must then go so-called borrowing. and they borrow from the private sector and from the you know domestic private sector and the international private sector. And what borrowing, so-called borrowing actually is as an operation is Congress authorizes the spending. the Fed and the Treasury do complex things together to coordinate the releasing of the funds, which is only pushing buttons on, the, on a computer, that has a spreadsheet that's all it is there's no vault there's no tax dollars mm-hmm. that are piled up high in some room that you know Scrooge McDuck likes to you know <laughs> ski down that does not happen so they just push buttons on a computer and and then the the funds are now available mm. then after that after that the treasury offers up these securities and and to for people to buy usually rich people to buy and then we call that when they buy it, we call that borrowing. But what it really is, is us just creating more money, creating more investments and saying, you want to buy them? Sure. And the, and the rich people, whether they're Chinese or the Chinese government or the, uh, you know, or, or our financial elite are like, are you kidding me? Of course, these are safe. They give me interest. I'm, they're going to make me even richer. So mm-hmm. the the MMT point of view is to say first of all selling treasuries is not a borrowing operation at all that's mm-hmm. separate it from that second of all you know like it's not like a big deal if you want to keep offering these things that's cool like you can we can always pay them we can always pay interest we can always pay this stuff off because we have the computer right there's no there's no problem mm-hmm. um, and of course during this pandemic The Fed is very vocal about this. And if you pay attention to the financial press, you'll know that, you know, people like, you know, the the Fed chair, uh, one of the Fed chairs, Neil Kashkari, recently said, you know, we basically have an infinite amount of money to support uh, the private sector um, in, you know, through this, uh, through this Mm -hmm. crisis. Right. So um, they where where was I? I, I they, the,
0: the, the, this is yeah, yeah, for, get... Let me just reflect back on what yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, good, you know. good, good. I think it's, you know, because in this, again, this is where I kind of put it into the, this is a perception, right? So it's, yeah. it's really, okay, this is, this is perceived as safe. So there's investments made in there. And then those investments are sold to other investors uh, who also see that as safe and a gain. And it's, everything is so interconnected that there's, people who are making money in certain places and that are feeling safe with their investments in other places. But that ultimately, like you said, it's just kind of a, you know, check, you know, here's how much here and how much there it's, it's all on computers. It's, it's, it's not a tangible thing. It's a, you know, it's a, (laughs) it's a a relationship.
1: (laughs) It's a scoreboard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm back. You got, you got me back. So the, 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 the the second point was, like no big deal. we can always make these payments, like you know the debt's not being p- passed down to our grandchildren who are going to have to right. pay it back and they're going to run out of money and I mean like that's not going to happen and then the third point would be, well, you know these treasury securities that we keep issuing en mass have distributional effects, and those distributional mm-hmm. effects are they're basically giving you know welfare checks to the rich, and we might want to ask do we want to give those welfare checks to the rich or maybe Mm. should we be spending on a job guarantee instead? Mm. Not because we can't afford both, but because for for democracy's sake, we might not want to be essentially fueling wall street, which is what these treasury securities do because wall street really Mm -hmm. revolves around these, these base securities.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I had a thought that I just uh, just flitted, uh, flitted out of my brain too, but it's it's so very fascinating because it is different. It gets into this banking thing that so few people in the United States in particular really have a good grasp of um, because again, like I said earlier, most of us, most Americans live down in there where the reality is you do have a budget because you're living paycheck to paycheck and you yeah. either get to buy something or you don't. But once you move beyond that into the higher income brackets into government and into business it becomes much more of this scoreboard back and forth wiping debts clean with bankruptcy kind of life where you know that's that's unfathomable to the vast majority of americans yeah um,
1: absolutely and you know to come back to you know how banking works just like basic banking it's magical <laughs> it's magical right. compared to what most people think most right. people think that it's like the the film, it's a wonderful life when you know the community brings their deposits into the bank, and then the bank has a finite amount of deposits, and then it'll lend out those deposits into the community and earn interest, and that's how it makes a living, and, ma- and you know, that's how they make a living, and how how everything moves forward. But in fact, this is not true at all. The the banks do not lend out deposits. What they do is they just create magically create credit. When they see Mm -hmm. that somebody is creditworthy or a firm is creditworthy or a business idea is creditworthy, they create a line of credit and they create U.S. dollars out of thin air.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And it's like an investment on their part, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. On behalf of the, the 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 authorities that have given them permission to create this credit, and so in the MMT world, what we say is, money is a public utility. It's a capacity to to issue credit. It's a legal construction. It's an accounting construction. It can be it can be constructed in other ways. So why is it that you know we pretend that the federal government is broke? We and then we give all this credit creating capacity to all these, you know, financial corporations, and uh, that that really, you know, aren't doing a lot of great things with it. Uh, meanwhile, we, we demand that that our individual states and counties and municipalities are, you know, uh, uh, tightwads essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's absurd.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they're like, that's another thing that a lot of the Republicans in my race are running on, especially the man who is the the, the mayor of Fort Myers here. He's like, I balance the budget. We always said, you know, and the state, uh, even the there's two state reps who are running in this race. And there's a, a like, a, I think it's an amendment to the Florida constitution that says that they have to have a balanced state budget. But yeah, exactly. You're right. Is that it goes into this, you know, then you are you're pinching yourself unnecessarily acting as if there, there is a finite amount of resources What it is ultimately ends up being just, do we have to, can we do it? And I want, before, before we, we, we wrap up where you tell me a little bit about um, uh, how else we can, how how else other people around the country are using this. Um, But that give, uh, tell me again, what you had walked me through before about, that that how it is that the perception works, and the way that I had explained it in my very uh, on the spot way in that interview a couple of weeks ago was that you know because we have a strong economy, we have uh, people who are you know we have resources, we have businesses, uh, we have production capacity, um, and that is continuing to go that's what ultimately fuels the our ability to continue to to grow and invest in the public realm as well uh, because if we didn't have those things then we wouldn't you know the there there wouldn't be the ability to continue to move forward with the economy and this is what separates I guess, well-functioning economies versus, you know, less well-functioning economies around the world, but that we do have this capacity and it's that perception of capacity that will continue to us to move forward. Can you, can you help me rephrase that in a better way so I can help to explain a little bit about why it is that we don't have to be constrained uh, by this mentality that there's a finite pot of money?
1: Yeah, um, I, a lot of a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think that's pretty good framing. Uh, you know, we, we often, in the orthodox perspective, ask the question. You know, what what backs the money, right? And nowadays, since the '70s, we live in a so-called fiat money uh, mm-hmm. system with the dollar being pure, just backed up by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, not gold, right? right. Um, and from an MMT perspective, you know. Money was never really so-called backed up by gold, and really, uh, to ask what backs up money is sort of silly and a nonsensical question. You know, what what is what is behind money? I would I would just say, you know, what what money does is it creates production, right? And it creates obligations. And yeah, what you were saying, we have infrastructure, we have businesses, we have people with skills, and they do work. And sometimes it's really good work. And you know that's why we can, we can always, you know, expand more or change the composition of that infrastructure and production in, in green ways or more just ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the only thing that I would um, just, just uh, maybe adjust a little bit on what you said is you kind of started with the private sector. You were like, well, Mm -hmm. we have businesses and we have, production and private capacity and laborers um, and that's what's going to allow us to grow but what what I'll say is that yes of course that's necessary right when um, when when you don't have that <laughs> you're in a failed society but it's also important to come back to government and the public and mm-hmm. yes uh, I, I, I don't have uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not giving good grades to our public <laughs> and and it needs a lot of work but you know the only reason why the private sector can do what it does as we've said previously is because we actually do have has historically have had a functioning government mm-hmm. that that for all of its faults you know does collect taxes that does you know provide all kinds of fiscal support and tax breaks and programs all across the country and, and beyond. And if you didn't have that, you you couldn't have the robust private sector either. And of course, all of this has to be kind of bracketed, because right now we're in an age, we're in a moment of incredible mm-hmm. crisis mm-hmm. and flux, and mm-hmm. Congress is sitting on their hands and not doing enough. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, um, I think I, I get into the mode of introducing MMT according to like what was normal times and now you know <laughs> some of the things i i, I typically say <laughs> kind of <laughs> uh, meet some stumbling blocks
0: well i will say that this is something that i you know in in my vein my area is political science and public administration and i tell people this all the time i said listen the united states government was the 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 bedrock of of public administration theory around the world it was what we would look to and say this is how to do it. This is how to create democracy. This is how you create um, civic participation and civic engagement. This is how you set up public programs to invest um, in our country, and in a country. And it was, you know, when we look at it and the way that I had taught it, because I did Research uh, this outside of the United States, right? We were using the fundamental, you know, frameworks and research from the U.S. system, and we were teaching it to other countries and looking at it and going, "Yeah, that's fantastic." and And look at you know how Social Security works in the United States and what does that function in the economy, and and look at how uh, you know Medicare, Medicaid, you know, um, disability, all these things function um, at, at a macroeconomic level. Um, and other countries want to do that. And mm-hmm. it was so shocking for me to come back to the United States after spending eight years abroad and realized we've been asleep at the wheel, yeah. right? That we let all of these amazing things that made us strong, that made us a global leader, that made other governments look to us and want to be better, Um we we let that slide and we let it yeah, slide based on, on this fiscal conservatism. Yeah. And yeah. it's all this like we can't we gotta we don't have enough money, the roof's on fire, we gotta disinvest in all of these things without realizing that this is what made us great. Yeah, and it was. Mm-hmm. Um so it's heartbreaking to me. It's heartbreaking because I said, this is my technical skill set. And I look at it, I'm like, oh, man, we really just need to get some of this back. We need to get people to believe that it works. Um, and I, I think I just made a connection to, based on the conversation that you were, you know, we were having here, is that this, it is the strength of the government that does separate um, economically successful from the economically unsuccessful countries in this world and I will carken that back to Jeffrey Sachs and all of his work on poverty around the world understanding the poverty traps and that um, there is a fiscal po- poverty trap but there's you know there's also um, a relationship that that has with the government. And if you have a government that is not functioning and not investing in the infrastructure, in the capacities of their people, then you cannot have a country get up and out of poverty. It's a catch-22 to a certain extent. But if you think about it in the the framework of modern monetary theory, I think you can get a lot further. So you stop thinking from that deficit mentality, start thinking from the investment mentality about how to structure it, and you can move in a Economy out of poverty, but the, it has to be by fortifying the government structures because in the vast majority of the poverty traps, the government is is one of the key factors.
1: Absolutely, and if we're talking about um, you know, post-colonial, so-called developing nations, you know, they they're they're caught in these these international debt right traps, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. their economies are, are predicated on export-led growth, where they essentially, you know. Most of the labor they're doing is is um, being shipped out of the country and not serving their own interests. Um, mm-hmm. And then they become just more and more uh, dependent on imports, right? And imports that are that they have to buy in dollars or euros or whatever. And and so what happens is that they don't have their own currency and their own government investing it in their own currency and putting it out there. And if they, ha- if they have their own currency and they're not using it enough or if they don't have their own currency, um, it, either way, they need to get and, and work their currency and to do so in, you know, strategic. You can't just be all at once. Strategic ways to build up the government infrastructure, but the, the, the public production capacity and start creating <laughs> creating agricultural production and energy production at home. So that they're not so dependent on imports, so that they don't have to borrow as much from abroad, and eventually, you know, barring anything, you know, I mean, we can always have like geopolitical agreements that you know wipe debt clean, and that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. But if you're just talking about a, a a macro strategy for a a developing country, um, there is a way to to use MMT as a framework. To get yourself out, get yourself out of that kind of zero sum situation.
0: Fantastic! All right, so let's let's hear from you some final thoughts. I think that there earlier on there was a couple things you wanted to loop back to, but so leaving here, what do we really need to know about modern monetary theory um, to be effective and move forward?
1: That's a great wide open question. Um, okay, so. Maybe one thing I'll loop back to is uh, Rashida Talib's uh, boost act, mm-hmm. um, and so she's working with my modern monetary theory colleague. As I said, his name is Ro- Rohan Gray, Rowan Gray, and um, what what this bill does is it takes advantage of a particular uh, provision. Uh, (laughs) that permits the treasury to issue a platinum coin of any denomination that it it chooses. And then that becomes legal tender because the treasury has minted the coin. Now, Mm -hmm. this this, um, provision was found uh, back in the Obama years when there was all the controversy about the sequester and the debt ceiling and uh, it kind of exploded on the internet and on Twitter, um, and, and then lawyers started arguing about it. Um, and the, the proposal was essentially to mint a trillion dollar coin and just pay off the debt. And, and then you don't have a debt ceiling problem anymore. And then you can just you know, go, hmm. go proceed with congressional appropriation. This is a total gimmick. From an MMT point of view... It's just, yeah, I mean, we can always afford it. That's the, that's not the issue. You don't have to mint a coin. But this was a kind of like a, a, a way to politicize and to show what's actually possible, right? Mm-hmm. So my colleague has been working on that for a long time, has been thinking about it. And then... Um, uh, it, you know, it went out of the news cycle, and nobody was talking about it. But he, you know, he has been working with uh, Rashid Talib and uh, some of the other uh, more progressive uh, uh, Congress people, and he floated this idea of minting the coin to them, to the mm. to the um, uh, to the Talib uh, folks, and and they were into it. And then they they built a um, a whole package of you know how. How are we going to get the money? Get money to people for relief right away, right? Um, mm-hmm. And they 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 proposed um, that you could use a, an app, right, to to get the money, um, mm-hmm. or you could get a government debit card. And what this mm-hmm. would do is set up public bank accounts, and suddenly everyone who was unbanked. Would become mm. banked, right? And they would have free public banking where they don't have to go to, you know, payday lenders. Talk about mm-hmm. disrupting political mm-hmm. power, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to go to payday lenders. They don't have to pay fees, you know, fines and fees, you know, at, at whatever the corporate bank is down the street. Um, and so, so this would. Um, and then there was another component, which was about sending out basically like care teams. Uh, training and sending out care teams to make sure that everybody who needed access to the app or a debit card was getting it, and would, would also, you know, be kind of trained in kind of basic nursing and be, you know, going out there making sure that everybody during the pandemic was doing all right. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, it's an incredible, it's an incredible proposal. And Bill, you know, obviously, like this do nothing Congress is not jumping on this bill, but mm-hmm. it shows the kind of imagination that, that is opened up when you have a correct understanding of the monetary system, the way that MMT describes it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I said earlier into you is, is that, that this is an alignment with the way that I had understood our, the functions of our economy, our global economy and our, our national economy. It's, it is, it's, it's, it's far less rigid that I think people want to believe it is because I think they, you know, you get money in your hand and that's real. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but what they don't realize is that, that behind it and that, you know, that that's a small component of, of the rest of the story. And yeah. I think that's what helps us here is that, and, and as policymakers, yes, we, we can do that. We have that ability to have imagination and policy development, um, because the fiscal policy and the fiscal interventions are absolutely necessary, particularly in times like this. Um, Couldn't and agree more. We, we, need, we need to have that, that flexibility for innovative thought um, to move, move forward and through it um, because it's, it's, it's part of our own design is what's going on right now in the economy. Yeah. So, uh, and we can be the ones to fix it. We are the ones we're waiting for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Preach.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Sky. Um, is there any way that somebody could learn more about this? What would be a good resource to direct them to? Yeah,
1: well, well I would say is like nowadays you can just you can just do an internet search on modern monetary theory and find all kinds of cool stuff, you know, popular writings, scholarly writings, uh websites, videos, all of that kind of thing. You can check out my nonprofit um uh, Modern Money Network. It's at modernmoneynetwork.org. Um I definitely, if you're a novice and you just want to kind of wade into these waters a little bit and see what it's like, I just I would just search Stephanie Kelton and I would check out some of her videos. She's you know very plain spoken, way easier to understand than me, and uh, and she'll just she'll make you feel comfortable as as you're wading into these waters. And then you know probably also check out her new best selling book. You know like why not the deficit myth.
0: Great. Well, I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and sharing this uh, with me. Um, I'm going to be a good student and I'm going to, Mm. I've already started doing my research on it, but um, I really think that this is something that we need to embrace and keep messaging on so people understand it because we do need to break out of not only just the deficit mentality that we bring to our economy, but that, that there is these constraints and this rigidity that simply doesn't exist in reality. We are our own prisoners in that. We're we're imprisoning ourselves with that thought. Um, So thank you so much, Scott Ferguson, for joining us here today. And um, I am going to sign off here. So thanks so much. And I'm Dr. Cindy Banier, and this is Dr. Cindy Speaks, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to CindyBanier.com or connect with her directly at vote at CindyBanier.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banier.